You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Now, I'm fired up, man. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you what, right now, I'm super fired up to be on with you guys. And, and wow. I, can't, I can't believe that, that Mark Yano, that Marine Corps knucklehead, included me into this. So I'm, I'm, I feel very privileged. I, I think it's really cool it. that you came on as well, Dave, because I know that the Team Frog Logic that I've listened to a lot of your podcasts as well. And I was telling, it's funny, a buddy of mine that's over in uh, Scotland, Graham Walker, and uh, that he follow, we follow each other on Twitter. So I, I guess he's a buddy that way. Isn't that yeah. how it works? Uh, social media. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, at any rate, I, I let him know that uh, you were going to be a guest. And he's like, oh, yeah, cool dude. I follow him as well. And I'm like, wow. you this." I, so it's really cool that you're coming on. Perfect. You're our first Navy SEAL, by the way. Ah, I love it. I don't know why. Well, I actually do know why, but yeah. <laughs> I dig it, oh, man. Boy. Yeah. I got, a funny, so Robert, I got a funny story about that whole thing. So there's there was this young man I mentored for, my God, for almost seven years before he finally got a billet to go to Bud's. And he came out of Florida State, their NROTC program. Yeah. Yeah. He did miserable and mini bud selection, all that. Just really hard, buddy. But he ended up going to fleet, learned some things as he should from a bunch of uh, great chiefs and stuff, and got a billet. And was was funny that the academy guys quit within the first couple of weeks. So he became the OIC of his class, did great, went through SQT, the whole thing, gets to a team, you know, does an early deployment as support in the talk. But his second deployment he does, he gets liaisoned out to work with the Polish, uh, not the Grom, but they send their elite police force, their national police force over to Afghanistan to get into ticks too. And so he's their liaison to, you know, to soft, and they get in this huge gun battle one night, like for seven hours, just this slinging lead. And they come back and they're having some beers and, and the guys are like, yeah, so you did great. And so you're a Navy SEAL. And they're like, hey. By any chance, have you ever heard Frog Logic? <laughs> you know, and my buddy just stops and he's like, "Are you?" Kidding? He goes, "Yeah, I, I know a little bit about it." <laughs> and so, all the way in the middle of Eastern Afghanistan, a bunch wow. of Polish dudes are like, "Hey, have you heard Frog Logic?" So I'm huge in Poland, man. That's great. That's awesome. You know, I, we were just, matter of fact, uh, before we came on the show here, Kat, I had to do a, an audio check. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty yesterday and with our guest that we had on as well as my own system. And so Kat and I did a check. And while we were talking, we were talking about our statistics and the following that we have around the world. And, you know, when you think about mentors for military, it, mentoring military really kind of goes all over and the fact that many veterans still have the same issues, whether, you know, what, regardless of whatever country that you're in, we're running into the same types of issues, regardless of where they're from. One of the big things that I'm getting right now are guys from the British. Are, I'm getting probably three or four emails or social media contacts a month right now from British guys. And they're going through the same things that we are. And, and what's remarkable is, at least in America, people are professing to respect us. They're professing. They, they'll, they'll throw out, hey, thank you for your service type. And o- over there, apparently, they're not getting a lot of that. In fact, you know, th- you know a, a, a great p- proportion of, of people in, in England are, are kind of upset that they've been in a, as involved as they have been for, since the beginning. 
and 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 I think that that intensified I law the the Vietnam experience that our our guys had. So yeah, we uh, just talked about that in a couple of last podcasts, especially with Colin Clockland. I don't know if you're familiar with Colin, former uh, SAS celebrity and current author as well, but he was on a show that they did over there called SAS Who Dares Wins. And basically it's where they take civilians and bring them in for eight days and put them through special forces assessment selection type training. It's pretty uh, wild. I love, in fact, what's crazy about that is I just got a hit from a production company in LA that's trying to do the same show here. Are they really? Yeah, they're looking for team guys. Hey, there we go. We got two guys at least right here, right now between (laughs) you and Mike. I I couldn't do that because psycho rut would come back out of me, instructor (laughs) rut. And and I don't, I don't ever want to experience that person anymore. It was too dysfunctional. The cool thing about the show with the SASO is there's no prize. There's no winner. There's no loser. You either make it or you don't make it. But would would that work here? You would draw a different type of person into that contest. Kind of like sure. kind of like the Discovery Alone show, those guys up there on the island. And of course there's a prize to that. Naked but, and afraid. But, but that's the one I love. That's <laughs> yeah. Not because they're naked, because you, you get down to the raw basics of that human condition, right? Yeah. Right? They're really when you when you strip away people of 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 how they value themselves or what they use to prop up that that sense of, of, of self-confidence or, or how to deal with comfort. fear or whatever. The comfort, right? That comfort zone behavioral pattern. It, when you're naked, all that stuff is exposed. And that's what, and, and I love it how like, oh, world survival expert, right? And they get out there and they're like, Brian with mosquito bites. Yeah. You're like, what'd you expect? But it's funny because, like, right when they see each other, they're like, they have to size each other out. They're like, okay, I need to look at everything. And then by like the last day, they're all like decrepit and we're the best of friends. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> that's that, that's, and, and that's the beautiful part of the show, right? That's really the amazing thing that we all, you know, I think, uh, you know, while we're in, we take for granted. And, and what your show helps people recognize is that the transition out of that is really becomes one of the greatest mission concepts that we have in our civilian life is to search that out and how difficult it is to find that common ground, whether it's, you know, exposing our soul or exposing who we are physically, mentally or spiritually. And that's the beauty of 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 what you guys are doing is helping people find, you know, a little bit of a a lot of bit of a, a of a direction, a path to follow to to appease that. That's why I just I, I'm so stoked to be on with you guys. I really am. I really feel privileged, man. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you coming on. So we're gonna jump right into the topic because our topic is overcoming the fear of failure. And so in listening to your podcast and a lot of the stuff that you've done with the private sector and business has been around. You kind of you know, pumping them up, understanding the challenges that they're facing is something that they can overcome. That is, you know, maybe a lot of it's introspectively. You've got to look within yourself. And I thought that was a really cool topic because when you start thinking about the military that are transitioning out, or even a lot of the military veterans that listen to us that are out there in the private sector that are thinking about a career change, a lot of times they don't want to, they, they don't know what they're looking at they have a fear that's there that they don't want to mention. And most of it's just that fear of failure. They're used to supporting their family. They're used to having that kind of support around them. If it's a military, it's kind of a the guaranteed income, the guaranteed benefits, all of those, those types of things. 
So I thought, God, this is this is like great. And it, what better person to talk about it than somebody that talks about it on a daily basis and developing teams and those types of things and what you and Team Frog Logic does. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you acknowledging that. I mean, one of the one of the real interesting things that I was able to discover about fear, and 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 I love how you reference it in terms of the the you know in in while we're in service, there's a pre-existing net of of psychological s- support, right? Whether it's your teammate, your fire buddy. Uh, it's, you know, that, that paycheck every first and 15th, all that stuff is, is ingrained. And, and so what, what they allow you to do is to focus on that real fear of facing combat, if that's the role or your real fear of, of whatever your job requirement is. And I, and I remember that when you're able to focus that, that much energy on, on processing fear for that particular, that one little pinhead, you know, it, 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 you, you become proficient at it. When I got out, one of the things, the questions that I just kept getting pummeled with is, were you afraid? Were you afraid? And what did you do? And were you afraid? And, and I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, try, you try, try driving around a countryside with 25 million landmines in a dune buggy. Yeah, you're going to be afraid. It's a part. But I don't, we don't think about it like that. Well, I started to go, well, why not? And what are the things that we all are, are exposed to that they aren't? So I, I spent two years researching fear. And what I came up with were some pretty, pretty glaring truths about the human condition, no matter where you live or find. And, and they really result in the fact that the overwhelming majority of human beings are never taught to effectively deal with their fears. From a very early age, uh, we're taught to avoid confrontation, to avoid trauma, to avoid uh, taking unnecessary risks, you know, the protective womb of our, our, our educational system, you know, how we, you know, teach to coddle in, in some aspects, you know, up until, you know, teenage years where then we're like, all right, you're on your own. But um, so what people just don't have, they don't have a reference of what their fears actually are. And that that got me. And, and that's where I like, I, you know, we all hit a point where you can't deny your, the experience you're in, right? That first time gunfire is happening or that first time you're in a training environment where you're like, wow, I could die right now. It, it, it forces a truth. Most people don't go after that truth. I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys have witnessed that and in, in, in your dealings. Well, one, one thing that I've noticed just with working with special ops is that when we were going through the course, which was absolute garbage, the best thing that I learned that they send, and Mike, you can attest to this too, is the SOSEP training that we got. Now, because they always told me, they're like, hey, you, you'll never know until you're in this situation, but let's get you physiologically how you're going to feel and then be able to tone it down. And I remember the first time that I got in a firefight and you know how they always tell you to go green, like find your happy spot. So you kind of like bring everything center again. And we did a, uh, my OIC and I, we did a, like a back brief afterwards. She's like, okay, cat, like, how do you feel? I'm like, you know, this is the most dumb thing, but I'm going to tell you when the was flying, I was like, go green, go green. And it did. It kind of like, it brought me back center. And because I could relate to, you know, the adrenaline that they put me through, through training or whatnot. But you, like you said, like you, you don't know until you're in 
the actual environment when things are happening. But, you know, for me, it was like, I thank God that I, you know, preconditioned myself to actually handle that because, and, and a lot of guys, you know, afterwards, like, you're, you know, are you afraid or how do you deal with it? They don't, they don't know how to deal with it because they aren't preconditioned like that. So that's, it's good. I good think stuff. that for a lot of these extreme things we're talking about, particularly in combat, you know, we have a, we have a training structure, like you referenced there, that, that kind of conditions us to fear. You know, that's why we do stress shoots. That's why we do competitive shoots. It's why we do uh, a lot of the different type of combat scenario engagements. And through that, I think we transition fear into just a battle drill, man. It's, and it's more, and David, I think you'll identify with this. It's flow. It's not fear anymore, right? So that's, that's why state. we do things over and over and over, and we achieve that flow state. And and I think, we, I mean, fear is still there. But I, I've said, and I've said this a lot, you know, fear fear isn't real. Fear is a product of our own thoughts and our own imagination, and, and as opposed to danger, which is very real, right? Danger is real, and you've got to mitigate, you know, the risks that are associated with danger, and that's how we train. But uh, I, I think that fear is a product of our own minds, and we create that. I will challenge you a little bit on that because okay. in, in the research that I did, the, it, it all it all moves towards our limbic system, right, and how we process that in, external environment. And, and the amygdalas and the way they're, they're, they dump cortisol and the way, you know, we get into that, that fight or flight is the easiest way to describe it. And now they're starting to realize that it's, it's a bunch of different components that are all taxing, you know, that, that hippocampus and those, those amygdalas and, and everything. I, I think, you know, and, and there's a guy out there, his name's Dr. Charles Morgan. He, he was at Yale for a long time. He's one of the country's leading research guys on PTSD, as well as a bunch of other things. Um, he actually studied you guys, Mike, going in SEER school at one point about 10 years ago and was able to recognize that, yes, that conditioning that we go through was able to lower the prevalence physiological of certain res core responses. But they were there nonetheless. So as soon as external uh, triggers ignited, our pulse weights would jump. They wouldn't go to the 175, 180 where, you know, it overrode our prefrontal cortex. But what it would do was it would literally, it would, we'd be able to, you, we would operate in that 150. So we could still make clear decisions, answer questions, all, you know, take the hard cell slaps and we're okay, right? Because we could process it. So, uh, you know, and, and they've tested it on race car drivers. They've tested it on all, all these different periods. So the fear, the, the physiological fear, and, and the easiest way to describe fear, and over the history of time, it's been the easy. You can call it anxiety, hyperarousal, all these other terms that people want to push on it. I use fear on a, on a broad base. Uh, um, danger is a great way. But how, when we hit that, so the, the difference that civilians are going through is they're not conditioned in any way shape or form the only conditioning they actually get is through that real world experience of trauma whether it's physical trauma mental trauma spiritual trauma whatever it is that gives them the conditioning but you're like i'll, I'll go out so in in my embrace fear talk that i give because it's one of the core components of frog logic is first teaching people to be able to embrace fear and utilize it as a tool as we do every single day one of the first questions I ask is, you know, mission number one is to search for the truth of your fear. And I'll say, all right, mission, uh, step one of mission one is I want everybody out there to raise your hand if you have in the last month written down all your fears, past, present, and future. 
they don't, you know, every single one. I, when I was five, I was afraid of spiders, you know, or dogs. When I was 13, I was afraid to ask girls out. When I was 35, I was afraid to get fired. When I was 65, I was afraid to have, I didn't have my 401k in retirement set, you know, and, and I would ask people who in here has done that. And you would be surprised. The overwhelming majority is, is close to less than 2% of the audience. And when I ask them, why did you do the exercise? They tell me because I was in a class or I'm working with a coach or, or whatever. So when, you, when I started to analyze the society's drive to help with that fear concept that we got because we're in the military, that's a huge component of it. Um, and if you want to uh, find out more about the military and where our transition came, I don't, you guys, I'm sure you've read Dave Grossman's books uh, on killing on combat. Just His talked about whole, those books a couple days ago on one of our podcasts, David. Uh, so for me, he opened up Pandora's yeah. box. Me too. Um, Several years ago, reading on killing, you know, and, and, and how we, the evolution of training to get guys to engage a man sized target, that kind of thing. The, the trigger pull ratio from World War II to now especially in our world, because I think we're maxed out. The last I heard, we're at like 99.999% trigger pull ratio. That's, in a, that's a phenomenon. That's a phenomenon, all right, where human beings are, are so proficient at taking other human life because sociologically, psychologically, philosophically, we're just not preconditioned, as he, as he talks about. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of other people have experienced. So where you have a society, a group of people, and, and I've seen it, and you've, you guys have seen it all around the world too, they're just not ready for fear. So when people ask me, all right, how do I, do I need to go through SEAL training to become better at dealing with my fear? And I'm like, no, no, absolutely. It will actually probably be more detrimental to where you're at in your life than it will be beneficial. You know, that's why it cracks me up that everybody wants all these corporations and these, these, you know, athletic teams they want either a bunch of SEALs or a bunch of Green Berets or a bunch of Delta guys or to come in and beat them up for 72 hours, and then all of a sudden the light is going to go off. Right? Well, they, they get an association, though. I mean, here, here are guys who, who live at the, at the tip of the spear, so to speak, right? They're, they yeah. deal with the, the, the uncertainty of death all the time. And, and by associating with them and whatever, it's usually a physical event. I know I've participated in some of them and they're a lot of yeah. fun. And you, you, you give some good talk to these guys and they benefit from it. But I think through that association, they there's there's a little bit of growth on their side to where, hey, I've accomplished something today. And that's something that a lot of civilians, a lot of people in the private sector, they, they don't have in their life. Um, you yeah. know, you, you look at the couch to 5K type of uh, mentality of a lot of Americans, right? They live yeah. a sedentary lifestyle. They want to do something. So they pick, well, that's the first entry level, you know, type of a, of a sporting event I can, anybody can do. So they work toward that. And, and they probably experience a little bit of uncertainty at the beginning of it. Once they accomplish it, they tend to want to do something else, go a little bit further, maybe a 10K, maybe a marathon. Uh, but the majority of Americans don't engage that way. They just kind of work their cubicle, they come home, they're safe, they're comfortable, and they don't experience fear in their life. So if something like what we're trying to talk guys into, a big change, you know, a lifestyle change as you're leaving the military, if you're changing careers, well, you're going to experience that type of fear and uncertainty. You know, if you, think, if you think back many years ago, it was the ropes course. 
I mean, yeah. ropes course yeah. was right. the right. yeah. It was the ropes course that companies decided to use because it was the closest that they could get to challenging and building teamwork. Now what they do is they do it a little bit more on steroids because today with the war that's going on, we have combat veterans that are SEALs, that are Rangers or Special Forces or whatever, that is a great opportunity to, to lean on you guys and go, hey, listen, can you be a motivator to build teams? Because ropes courses have become rather boring in a lot of cases. So, For sure. yeah, what's another way to do that? And I think everybody's always looking for that new niche. I, and I, you know, and trust me, I have some very close friends that have done incredibly well with this thing you know don shipley and the extreme seal experience i mean he's done amazing things uh seal fit with mark devine uh go there's a yeah go yeah. look I, I love go ruck is one of my favorites because they they teach the mental aspect of it right. in, in a in a way that is is palpable or palatable for civilians so i really love those guys my problem is is when people hire me I, I'm not going to do that because the the concepts that I'm going to teach they take a long time, and and if I come in and I give you that burst, I, I give you that little bit of uh, I call it the dose of willpower to endure for another 30 days, if you will, or even 14, which I've found is really kind of the limit of a motivational speech or a, a, you know a, a big event like that could go 30 days, maybe 21 to 30 days. But for the long-term change and the cohesion on on that teamwork, I mean, you're talking. Look at look at all every one of your. Go back into your history, right? Look at the programs that really effectuated the greatest change, not only in you physically, but mentally and emotionally as well, too. We're talking. I mean, it took me four years, four years of intense, intense training, intense immersion. I mean, in the mix, right? to, to even get to a point where I could just keep my head above water in the context of going downrange with the, the, the men around me. So what I try and help these people realize is, is, is really to settle in for the long haul and to work on the core attributes of what creates great teamwork and culture. Right, because a lot of the big problem that I'm seeing with uh, civilian organizations, they everybody's freaking out about culture. Nobody understands their culture. Nobody, you know, they've got these juxtaposition of the millennials and then the baby boomers and you know all this crazy stuff going on. So they're like, "Help us with culture. We want to under, how, teach us how to be like a seal platoon." I go, "No, you don't want to be a seal platoon, right? <laughs> you, a bunch. It's a bunch of nut job dysfunctional misfits." that are really great in combat and that's it. So you don't want to, let's figure out what your culture is. So I I really, in my mind, I I pare it down for the the, the long approach. I I just, I've tried to do the short, short blast, you know, and I've, I've do it in my speech. I give a speech called the hammer session where it's my forging self-confidence talk where I go through the eight missions and I get, you know, people from the organization on on stage and I've got a baby pool filled with ice water and a baby pool filled with sand and I got a sandbag and I beat the snot out of them for 90 minutes while I'm giving the speech and it's entertaining. But, you know, the long-term stuff is just not there. So I, I, I try and stay away from that big pop and get them, get them going on a program that, that they can build off of and, and really focus on my, my number one thing is just having people accept that pain is a relevant aspect of life and needs to be a focal point of your development. 
instead of cowering from it or moving away from it or looking for that comfort zone area to where you can let that pain fly over your shoulder, man, I, I just like they teach us, square up, get that center part of your chest, you know, get that good front sight focus and deliver to, you know, confront that pain head on. And that pain is the forging process that teaches you the things that you need. You know, it's funny that you, they want the instant gratification. You know, everybody wants that <laughs> these days. But culture is not one. Yeah, and culture is not one of those things that you can change quickly either. I mean, it's it's going to take a long turn to modify or change a culture. So if somebody's coming to you and goes, "Hey, David, I I really need some help," you know, in changing the culture of my organization. Well, that's not a one week, you know, or one <laughs> session, one day type of thing anyway. You know, it, it's just much like the fear aspect. It's going to take a while to change that behavioral aspect. So there's a great guy out there. His name's Gert Hosteed. He's the world's leading expert on on culture, right? He's not quite a, a culturalist or sociologist or a psychologist. It's just this bad dude who's been studying culture for 40 years. And he's got this great book called Software for the Mind. And where, because he's for the last 40 years, he's been analyzing over 10,000 different organizations around the world. It started with IBM back in the 70s. And, and he looked at how the organizational culture of IBM, how it adjusted in all the different places where they were operating. He started this research and it's just built into this massive database. I mean, there's more, he has more data on organizational national culture than anybody in the world. And, and so when I started my research on culture about a year and a half ago, it, it, you know, I, of course you immediately gravitate toward this guy and, and he, he orchestrated these six dimensions that kind of human beings operate in. One was power distribution. There's a masculine, feminine, there's a, a in, there's a delayed gratification and instant gratification, all these different dimensions. But one of the things that I, I saw in there was, and, and I got this from, I, I recently started getting into positive psychology, you know, Martin Seligman, his whole movement at University of Pennsylvania and Harvard and stuff. And, I, and, and so what, what I recognize, and, you know, when you, when you try and understand culture and subcultures, you have to realize that there are, there are ways to manipulate the culture, but it's dependent upon the buy-in, Right. So when all of us, when we walk into our militaristic group, right, the Navy, the Army, you know, we raise our right hand. At that moment, we're like, hoo this is cool. I'm, I'm U.S. of A all the way. Then, then you go to boot camp or you go to your officer training school and you're in a more narrow subculture. Then you get to your unit. Then you do your unit training. Then you do that. Then you're actually deploying with a particular group, creating more culture. So the, the idea is that, you know, that, that work and in, in the, the evolution of cultures happens through the pounding, through the pain you're facing together, through, and, and it's in that suffering, it's in that, that recognition of, of how we're going to work together through that emotional intelligence that you start to create and generate your own culture. But people, like you said, they don't want that. They want the, they want the six-minute abs. They want the how to make a million dollars in 30 days. They want all that nonsense. And frankly, when I tell them, hey, this is going to take us minimum six months, like with my coaching clients, I, it cracks me up. You know, I'll get somebody on. They want to work with me. They want 30 days to go do this thing. And I say, listen, you're not even going to begin to even come close to understand what I'm talking about and for 180 days. And they're like, right. 
well, that's not cool. <laughs> and I say, I, I'm sorry. There, I'm sure there's another guy out there that'll sell you some something faster. So go find him. Good luck. And, you know, I'll, I won't work with the person. But so culture is, is a very challenging, just like fear is, right? You really got to invest in understanding where what you're afraid of and why you're afraid and, and how it changes. And then finding the right programs with the right cultural support to evolve. So we're talking about veterans that have either, or active duty military, people that are either coming off active duty or those that have already separated, they're in the career and they're looking for a career change. And if we're talking about that segment, if they've dealt with that fear through being a veteran on active duty, or at least many of them have, why is it that when they get out or they're approaching transition that they choose a different mindset? Two reasons, right? And I've been looking at this since I, my my separation. So I got I was in 95 to 03, did a combat deployment with Team 1 summer 02 beginning of the war, came out because of the, you know, my uh my detailer in 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 Memphis uh, and where I wanted to go and what he said, "No, this you're going to do this because you got to do this little combat vacation all that." So I, I was young and impetuous and dumb and I didn't think Iraq was going to go big. I thought it was going to be what it was the last time. Uh, so I punched out because I was, you know, and my transition was horrific. I, I, I jumped in the bottom of a bottle of Jack Daniels again. I've, I've battled depression severely twice in my life, once in college for four years and then the second time getting out for three years. And really had my – I was engaged. That was devastated and destroyed. I mean I was, I was the vet, you know, shirt off, Harley Davidson, sunglasses, three in the morning, a bottle of tequila in, you know, a 95 going 100 miles an hour. Like screw it. I, I don't care. You know, this is – no, I don't have any def definition. I got no purpose, so I don't care. Right. And and luckily, I had a buddy who had gone through training, was in my first platoon, who got me to work with Blackwater in the in the fall of '04. That gave me that culture again, and then I started building towards it. Luckily, my my real transition happened when I met my wife, and she was the one that I I wanted to change for. Now, a problem, once we got married, the economy collapsed, I went back to contract again and got sucked in even further this time and, and was right back in that same mindset where I wasn't focused. So for me, I've had an extensive problem being afraid to let go. All right. So what have I learned as a result? It comes down to the, the, the two real things. Number one, right, the stigmatism that's affiliated with our fear and failing and not being good and, and exposing what we're weak at in the civilian sector is brutal. And it's the stigmatism that is attached to the challenges with drug addiction and alcohol abuse, the challenges with seeking help for PTSD and TBI, the challenges of, of all of it. It's that stigmatism that we're not combat ready. And for me, that combat readiness was, was brutal because I imagine that if I walked into a room within 30 seconds, I could get everybody around me on board, right? You, over there, get over here. All right, you're going to be my ops chief, and this is the way you're going to act. And you, over here, come over here. This is how we're going to mission plan. We're going to use this five-paragraph op order. And this is my mom I'm talking to, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and my wife. And hell, I still do it to my baby girls. I got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And I'm like, all right, here's our op order for today. My wife's like, what are you doing? You're, you're crazy, man. And that conformity is just not applicable, Right. 
But that's the way we are taught to project that fits within our sphere of influence, our peer review, because of that combat efficiency, that combat readiness. Well, it doesn't apply in the civilian world. So I didn't, I fought having to be the one to adapt. And I didn't have the skill sets at the time to understand how to adapt or where do I go to search out for that, you know, adaptability? What program do I use that teaches me to go from being a, a killer to being, uh, you know, a, a positive role model, an effective member of society. And I didn't have it. And the, the other one that inhibits, I think, the greatest is just not, not believing that you can take these wonderful skill sets, these beautiful. I mean, how many times do you guys laugh at you'll be out in, in an environment and you'll think of 36 ways to make that environment more, you know, more tactically efficient. And, and someone's like, what are you, you know, what are you talking? And then you're like pointing out and you're, and you're like, I have so much useless tactical information in here. It's about ready to explode. And you're like, you want to get it out, right? <laughs> yes. But it's there and it's not going anywhere. And so there, there's such a fear and a doubt that you can translate those things into things that are desirable for other people. And I think that creates these big hurdles that, you know, one, I have to conform to fit into your culture of your your environment, whether it's a stockbroker, whether it's a, a greeter at Walmart or anything in between. It's, man, I have to change. That's going to lower my combat proficiency, and I have to change how I process information. Man, screw that. And that that's what creates the, the, the hurdles for guys. And they just they, – and because their network has been dismantled, and they're not, they don't get, they need to re, you know, rebuild their fire team from day one. I mean, the number one thing that I talk about, to, and I work with six different veteran organizations, charities right now, the number one thing when I, and I probably get 50, 60 emails a month from vets seeking out, hey man, how do I get motivated? How do I do it? Number one, I think it goes, go build your fire team. Number one, go find your swim buddy. First, who's your swim buddy? Who's the person you're going to call when you got that bottle of opiates and that, that bottle of Jameson sitting in front of you, who are you going to call to stop you from pouring that glass, popping those pills, to deal with your pain, to deal with your TBI? Who are you going to call that's going to get you on track just to wake up the next morning? And, 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 and so I, you know, building that fire team and then teaching guys that, hey, there isn't a- anything that you can't do. And, and it's that believing that, believing that they can – well, and this is what this is, and I know it frustrates the hell of you all too. Is you have a human being that has <laughs> that has climbed the mountain in in what they've seen and done, and the the friends they've lost, and staying there, and the the emotional connectivity they have to something that's so much bigger than them, the power that's inside them. But yet they can't do it again in, in that new environment because it's so scary. It's so they don't. It's like they 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 throw something out there and there's no resistance for it to come back. And I think that just it kills me and it really pains my heart because I felt it myself. And 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 so you know that's why these outlets, your show. And being able to have people tune into this and hear this and, and process, I mean, it's, it's in, one of the greatest, greatest assets 
that we as veterans can do for our brother and getting out because we're getting ready to get into a whole nother. I mean, you, you think the last 16 years was big. We ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, hell, we just, I just lost a teammate last week. Some of my closest friends were best friends. Hell, we just lost a dude in training yesterday. All right. So it, it's still on and you guys all know this. So how are we going to prep the guys that have been from the last 16 years to get them prepared to prep the next and to keep it going? When you're talking about these people that are coming off as well, I think, is there a situation where they're thinking maybe more us and them? In other words, they're not embracing that culture. We talked about the culture. Is that part of the fear or part of the angst that maybe they have in making the transition or in even looking at a different career change because they're very comfortable maybe perhaps where they are or there's fear of, again, that failure? But going back to the transition aspect of it, you can't go out thinking it's an us and them. You're now them. That, that's that's one of the most poignant things that anybody could ever say about this. You you are not. It's not us versus them, which which is so awesome when you're in because you can be out and say, "Look at that idiot! What an idiot!" You know, or what, SEALs what? versus Army or you know, Marine it Corps. Yeah, matter. yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of right. it is when you're when you have this this tribe, right? This tribe, you know, where that. That emotional connection is it's 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 palpable. You know, you you see an ODA team walk into a bar or a SEAL platoon or or a, a you know a recon unit from Marines or or just any I don't care who it is walk in and there's this energy that walks in right. Well, now it's like you're always like those idiots, them jerks, them. Now all of a sudden it's like I have to go join the jerks. I have to go, and, and and that submission is very difficult for people because it's like, all right, I'm lowering my standards. I'm lowering because they can never live up to it, and the frustration it just beats me down. I can't take it and all that, and and that's where you know what I try and work with guys is say, hey, listen, recognize that your path is going to be. I always say this. As long as your path was to get to your level of proficiency in whatever you did in the military, double that for what it's going to take you in the civilian world, right? And not, not just to be able to do your job great because that's, that's easy, but to be able to assimilate is going to take that much because you yeah. it's deprogramming, quite frankly. This is- this is so crazy because just just last week I went uh, I was talking to a counselor of mine and this is like nailing it on the head because he told me he's like he's like you know because I'm going to school for the medical field and I've been doing a bunch of clinicals like riding on ambulance and working in the emergency <laughs> department it's completely so different culture <laughs> completely different culture different mindset different people you know even though it's fast paced and it's ever changing like what you know it's comfortable for me so that's why I chose that. But I told him, I was like, you know, he's like, so how's this going for you? And I'm like, you know, I just, honestly, I can't stand it. And he's like, you know, it really takes a special type of person to be able to deal with blood and guts and all that stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, that's chill to me. That is chill. What I'm having an issue with is the moral compass that these people have in their bedside manner. (laughs) You know what he told me? He's like, you need to get rid of your God complex and kind of come down to earth with the rest of them. And I'm like, you know, I just, I can't do that. I cannot do that. And it is exactly what you said. It's like, you're trying to find that passion and that fire. And it's like, yeah, I'm proficient. I know I can be proficient. I can do any damn job. But the problem is, is that I just cannot stand being a part of these people and their mentality. And he even said, he's like, you know, it's okay. It's okay that you hold yourself to this tier 
and that you may hold these people to that tier also, but they're never going to be up to your expectations, Kat. So you just need to kind of come down from it. And then he told me that I need to get a psychologist and have one-on-one counseling because I need to come down from my, my gold throne. Your moral but, obligations, right? Yeah, I've yeah, got to come and you know, down it's, from my moral obligations. It's crazy because I'm like, these people are supposed to be out there saving lives. And it's just, you, I just cannot find the same fire. And it drives me crazy. I just I like, great, I got to find a different career path. You know what I, I mean? No, don't, don't. Right. Trust me. I, I got a great story for you, okay? So my first run, so we did it. I was 18 Delta Medic. So my first, we were to New York back in the day. So on my, like my second day on the ambulances, it was uh, Halloween 1997. And we get a call, guys, in a massive cardiac arrest. We go into South Bronx. You know, I'm the new guy. I got to carry everything up, you know, 10 flights of stairs. It smells like urine. I mean, it's like I'm literally living in, you know, a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Right? That, what was that Nick Cage movie? I forgot what it was. But, you know, I'm living in that movie. I get in. There's a, you know, huge firefighter just jackhammering on this dude who was like 5'5", 270 pounds, you know, tray of meds. And they look over me and they're like, all right, Rook, jump on. And I'm like, and, and I, you know, dive on. And I'm like, you know, I'm going big. I'm shooting them, you know, I'm, you know, big shock, papa shock, small, you know, I forget what it was. Big shock, little shock, mama shock, papa shock, right? I'm pushing Bertillium. I'm all like 45. My stuff's falling out. All I'm pushing. I'm going his, his, his wife and his sons and their girlfriend was sitting right at his head. Like, I, like my sweats hitting them in the face. I'm going, you know, I, I, you know, just crushing myself. And finally, you know, one of the medics I was with, he, he's on the phone, he gets the doc and looks over me, goes, all right, Rook, that's it. Cut it. And I'm going, I'm like, you know, I'm looking at him. I'm like, he's like, no, that's it, dude. Stop. And I'm going, I'm like, like no, I'm like, no, I, I can do this. I can do it. And he's like, Hey, stop pounding on that dude's chest now. And so, you know, I stop, I come back, and I'm looking up at his family. And this is the first death I dealt with, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking there. And the other dude is like, the other guy I was on the rig with who'd been on the rigs 18 years in New York, has got his coffee cup, and he's joking around with the firefighter. And, you know, I'm looking at the family. They're bawling now because they know what's going on. And and he looks at me, and he goes, hey, Rook, clean all your shit up, and, and let's go. I'm hungry. Let's go get something to eat. Like, and I'm how like, how in the hell? Yeah. And so that was the first time where I was confronted with moral ambiguity, right? And what's interesting, because the further I went in the SEAL teams and the, and the greater, you know, I swallowed the Kool-Aid, so to speak, the more I somewhat became acceptable in certain aspects of that moral ambiguity. But there was also that core honor, commitment, and courage of you know, of the teams and that ethos that, that still held strong. So when I got out, I figure I, I could ride both sides of that, but it's just not the case, right? In the civilian world, what we lose with the unit cohesion and the unit mission that falls away is really that moral ambiguity. So what you have to do is tighten it up to where that moral compass becomes the driver for you to raise the bar. Now, this goes back to the question. What I'm seeing is a lot of people will get into a job and they'll immediately see that the moral ambiguity is as as relevant in the civilian world as anything they ever had to do in the military, and it frustrates the hell out of them. And so what I teach people is say, hey, don't deny yourself that because that's become part of 
your identity. And right, the transition is about the reintegration of identity. It's about establishing, I, I you know what? I'm a veteran. I've got high moral standards. I've got an incredible work ethic. I've got, I'm not going to, I'm going to stand up for what's right, you know, and you're going to walk that, the line. The problem is, is that line in the civilian world, man, you're going to take a beating and you got to just, you got to embrace it. It's just part of the pain of growth. Now, hopefully what I teach guys or women or every, everybody is, hey, if you need to change, then change and go find something until you find that, that homeostasis that fits somewhat in how you are. Now, a lot of people will say, but I got to feed my family and I got to do that. And that's granted. And you, but you can actively pursue changes while you're stuck in one role and then move to the next. And move, I mean, it's, it's the same as, you know, mission planning or train, doing planning training missions, right? You know, you, you know where you're going, you know what you got to get done. So you set it all up. You're already, you're, you know, if you're in charge of the next block of training, you're in one, say you're in CQB and your next block of training is Mount. Well, you're already planning for that next training thing. Well, the same thing, you know, with transitioning to that next point. But you got, you got to find that place where you can maintain that, that, that moral conviction and not have it be lowered. Because, man, if you lose that, they're, they're going to take everything away from us. And nobody's trying to change who you are. But you, I like the fact, because I, I preach this a lot during the podcast, you've got to give yourself enough runway. And what, that's what you're really talking about, is that you can't take flight unless you've given yourself. You've got to do the preparation ahead of time to go, okay, I know I'm going to be getting out a year from now, two years from now, whatever the case may be. Most people fairly know when they're going to be getting out, some general time frame, you know. And if they know that, then start conditioning yourself. Start realizing that not that you have to totally change, but people are not going to perceive you maybe how you perceive yourself or how you see yourself today with the team of guys that know you. You know, Mike knows me. David knows me. You know, Kat knows me. They get me. I can, they know every move I'm going to make. They know before I do something what that feeling and what, you know, what I'm going to do. Well, now you're walking into an environment where nobody knows you and (laughs) you're now having to go into that new situation. And there is a lot of fear that comes with that. So that means you do the preparation, you do the planning, you so that you can execute it efficiently when the time comes. It's the same kind of preparation you did for any objective or mission you had within the military. And it It doesn't it doesn't change. It doesn't change. Yeah, it doesn't change. You don't want to erase all the great stuff that was imprinted on us. I got I got two good, funny, great stories, two opposite sides of the spectrum. Right. One, my one unbelievable, like one of my best friends in the teams, you know, spent 10 years at 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 a team on the West Coast, uh, had five combat deployments with them. Then he went over to a tier our tier one unit. He had four combat deployments with them, so 15 straight years of combat. At, you know, I mean, the guy, he's, he's a freaking Jedi. But he hit that point where he had to come off the line, and he realized it, right? His wife and his kids and all these other things, he realized he had to come off the line. So he chose to go to a place that's academic in nature. And, you know, at first he was like, Ah! <laughs> you know, yeah. and everybody's pontificating about what they think they know about combat and and what being a great leader is and hardship and and he's shaking his head right because these people are really uh, you know they're they're accomplished human beings in their own theoretical plane right right but here he's coming out and he's literally losing his mind so I 
you know, we started working together and I'm like, Hey bro, let's just, let's take a step back and let's, let's see what this is really the opportunity. Cause he's got three years there before he hits his retirement and then he can punch out. So we set up a plan for him to effectively make those, the gradual changes to move in, to take his experience, to formulate them in things that are beneficial, to get him in school, you know, to start spending time at a higher degree with his family to, you know, begin to understand who his son is, how to do that, his daughter, his wife, all these things that, you know, take time. And, and now he's, he's, He's literally at a full sprint, right? I mean, the guy is like on fire. I just talked to him the other day and he's like, yeah, this going on, this going on. I'm doing this and I'm doing here and I'm speaking here and I'm doing this. And I'm like, dude, beautiful. On the other side, I've got another guy that I went through. It was in training with back in the day. He just retired from that tier one unit. And he went literally from operating at the highest level, right? And he was in charge of a whole group and to... He, on terminal leave and now he's with his family and his kids and he's looking around and he's just like and he's you know one, in the headlight yeah he literally and this is this guy's also a jedi right and one of the most proficient in what he did in the living that anybody out there i mean the guy is amazing and and now he's like you know one statement we we had a retirement party a bunch of other vets that i hang out with down here a bunch of sf guys and marines and stuff and we had a retirement party for him and uh, one of the things he was like, man, nobody really gives a sh- what I, you know, they're, they're like, oh, cool, you're a team guy, but that's it. Right. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, do you know how disabling that is? And I go, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I go, but here's how we're going to do it. Let's start the process. Let's get you going. Let's get you, hey, let's get you a mission in front of you. Let's, let's start having you go through how to, how to decompress because it's that decompression that becomes you know critical so you know i mean it's it's it ain't easy you know mike uh i know mike wants to hit on this uh badly because i griff came on the show and he's from combat flip-flops the ceo one of the love founders it. there one of my favorite dudes on the whole yeah we, we really loved uh griff uh, coming on the show and griff's going to come back as a matter of fact here in a month or two and while he was on the show one of the things he said was you need to go ahead. The best advice I can give somebody is to, uh, as they're coming off active duty, take six months, decompress, enjoy the world around you, whatever, and then start coming back into the fold. What he said was, was sell everything. Yeah, he so did that say you have enough money to do nothing. Yeah, and do nothing. <laughs> and do nothing. You know? Yeah. So, and I, I, I am. I'm Robert Trout. I'm a huge fan of that. I've taken a year off before I'm starting my master's, and 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 I, I've I've been able to do a lot of the things that you are describing that your friends are doing. Reconnect with family. Focus on things that I wanted to do. Um, but I I gotta admit, I was kind of like the second guy. You know, I was I was performing at a very high level. I was managing all of our special operations training in Lebanon for my last year in the army, and I came home and it was like boom. You know, the end. That was it. It was over. What a great ride. But, but it was over. High five. And I didn't do Here's your plaque. Lot. See ya. I didn't do a whole lot of preparation. And, but thankfully, I had some. I had a little bit of time before I actually signed out. And um, one of the things, and it, it keeps coming up as I'm thinking about it, listening to you talk, David, is, is one of the things that I use when I finally decided which route I was going to go is I used the fear that I had of failure as a lever for motivation, right? Because – 
I mean, this is what we do all the time. We're team guys are notorious for we're afraid to let our buddies down. We're afraid to do something and fail. I've, I've been, I mean, I, a lot of people know me, know I've said I've, I failed one thing in my life that was jump master school. The first time I went, the second time I went, I passed. Um, but you know, what, what's looming in front of me is a lot more big brain intellectual stuff than what I had to deal with. It's pretty easy to show up and shoot, to, to show up and be in good shape. Those are all self-discipline type things. But when you've got to engage with an academic community, that's outside of my comfort zone, man, that's the fear that I'm using to, to drive me in, into what's next. And I, I think that a lot of people that they, they get paralyzed by their fear, so they don't tackle something that may be a lot tougher than they ever would have, uh, where if they would just take and look at, look at their future and look at what they're really afraid of, uh, and then assess, man, what have I accomplished? And I listen to you talk with a passion about everything these guys had done uh, everything that you have done, everything that we've all done in the military and on the teams, um, if you look at it in that context, man, that fear is, it's, it's minimal, right? I mean, nobody's going to shoot me. Nobody's going to shoot at me, right? And I think I, it's, what I think is incredible too, is that it, like most of the fear, like coming out is, you know, is going to be self-inflicted. So you avoid it, you know? So it's like, okay, I know that I have no idea what's going to happen out there. So I'm just going to avoid that. But I think like what you, like Mike and, uh, what you guys are talking about right now is just, it's so important to get into that mentality, especially when you know you're going to be transitioning out or retiring or, you know, and I think it's it's so imperative that guys are taught this while in the service and you won't be having so many, like, the homeless veterans or, like me, I'm all over the place. I've had, like, 10 careers in the last year, so yeah, it's, and it drives me crazy. Out. There are a lot of people out there, particularly on the teams, who once they've done it, Right, they get through buds. They get through the Q course. They're they're a performing member of the teams. Like, man, I've made it. That's it. This is as cool as I'm ever gonna be. This well, it's that, and it's like everybody it. around you too. Well, they all made it also, and that's yeah. what you're like. Yes, he did it. I did it, and we're gonna be together. Where when you get in the civilian world, it's like you have your own opinion. I can't handle that. No, I'm not gonna have you. I have my opinion, and your opinion is wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like you said, you have to assimilate to that. And that's hard. Like I am dealing with that now, and it's extremely hard. You know, one of one of the big things that that is in in whether you're, and it doesn't matter if you're changing careers or if you're changing your collective culture or you're changing your physical environment where you live. It, it's literally it's it's the prep work to do it. You know, leading up to it that makes the transition easier. That it. It's just the way it is, and it's the way we're preconditioned when you look at how we're raised. It's, it's built into it when you go from kindergarten to, you know, to first grade, from grade school to high school or middle school, middle school to high school, when you, you, know, when you make the to college or into your first job or as you move up. You know, there's these – it's gradual or, or – but the challenge is, is, is really when you have to, you have to take on board that no matter what, life is going to be difficult. Yes, and, and, and different, and different, and that's the beauty of it. That's the joy of it is, is to really, you know, like, you know, to suck the marrow out of life, so to speak. Right? I mean, a little Walt Whitman at you, and and, and when you can really, you know, frame your experiences. Not as a the pinnacle of, of definition of who you are, but as a segment of your life to pull from. 
and, and preparing what that next segment's going to be, you know, you have all these things propelling you forward, this knowledge base. And I think one of the big things that I always preach is say, hey, be incredibly self-confident in what you've seen and what you've done, but don't be incredibly arrogant to imagine that that self, that, that experience is applicable in every other place around. It's just not the case. And when you think about it and you think about how we're actually taught to solve problems, yes, it works for the battlefield, but it does not work in my relationship. You just ask my wife, the admiral. I mean, you know, she, she will tell you, no, he is out of his mind at times. And because, you know, I go into team guy mode and I'm like, this is the way it's going to be. Oh, you this, got is the knife it in. this is it. This is it. And let me tell you, and she's like, you're, you're insane right now. You're not making any sense. That's not the way it works. You know, just the other day with my, my daughter, she, it was time to go to tennis and she didn't want to get ready. And so what did I do? I dropped the instructor on her and, and then she's crying and bawling. I just want a hug from mama. Negative. You're not getting a hug. Right. And I'm, and my wife is like, you're out of your mind. And, and I realize that now. And, and, and I accept the fact that my, at one time, my proficiencies in many cases now are deficiencies. Right. So what I have to do is I have to go out and find the training programs or do the work, do make the effort myself to figure out how to take this incredible, incredible, wonderful, amazing, you know, just I mean, my times in the teens were it shaped my whole life and, and the people that I was around and my times contracting. I mean, it's just I would never train trade a single day of it at all. Even the, my worst days, I would never trade because it's given me the inspiration to know that I can take from those things and move forward and grow and become that next level person. The challenge that I'm seeing is people don't have the self-confidence to say, I want to be this. I want to yeah. be a I want to be a neurosurgeon. I want to be I want to have a masters in psychology. I want to own my own business. I want to do these things. They 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 don't it's somehow in that 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 diff, those two different places they lose sight of what a dream is and what purpose is. But at the same token they can't continue living in the past too and we've talked yeah. about this. You, you, I mean you've got to move forward. You've got to say okay my time in the military, my time on team, my time with those guys or gals that I served with was all great. That's a chapter of my life. It doesn't define who I am. It helped make me who I am today but it is not the end all be all. I can now transform and go into a new environment because it's also one of the things the military taught me is that I can also be a chameleon. I can also change with the environment and lead or in uh, mentoring others or in accomplishing a new mission or objective. Again, it's one of these things that blows my mind, David, when people get off of the active duty that they don't they don't apply those same basic principles to the things that they were taught and they don't think that they can approach the private sector the exact same way or in accomplishing getting that degree or becoming that new career or whatever the case may be. They've got to take those same things that they've taught and realize they can apply them now, but they can't keep trying to live in the past. One of the greatest things that we do a disservice to all of our people now, it's, it's, it, in certain aspects, it's absolute necessity because we don't want 
you know, we don't want too much free thinking out there. But one of the reasons why I really love special operations and realized it was the only place that I would have been able to fit in is because there's a certain aspect of autonomy and free thinking that goes into counterinsurgency, guerrilla warfare, special operations. So I, it was very attractive to me coming from the, you know, I was an art major in college with a minor in poetry, right? I never would have guessed that. Yeah, I was a hippie, right? (laughs) That's right. You know. Were you headed for the uh, thespian route? I, I, I used to, I, (laughs) so I used to add bars, I'd get hammered and I would get up on, on the bars and I would recite my poetry and and I would make everywhere we go at Penn state when I was there. Right. (laughs) So, you know, it wasn't, you know, to the detriment of my scholastic capability though. Anyways. So, you know, what I say is veterans, we lack that metaphorical identity, right? That ability to take the metaphor of, of the experience and translate it into the bigger scope of life, right? to initiate the philosophical pondering, right? Hmm. You know, and I'm not saying you got to go out there like Descartes and spend 10 years in a shack and figure that out because that's absurd and nobody has that time. A year, awesome, more the better. A month, if you can, 60 days, whatever you can do. But even when that period is over, you still have to be in that space of growth, that psychological growth to recognize, man, there is so much I don't know about the human condition. There is so much about about relationships that I don't understand. There is so much about, you know, being able to take myself out of my defensive posture and and open become vulnerable to ideas. Right? And and that's where we struggle because we think everybody's an idiot. Everybody's a moron. Everybody's and nobody knows how to do it like I know. And and the, that's a problem. So you have to stretch out and, and take the metaphor of a particular experience, the will to survive. Everybody here understands when I say the will to survive, you think to that person that hopefully you had the opportunity to look in their eyes and say to you, listen, you're going to make it. Hold on. You're all right. You're going to make it. And seeing that light spark, well, that's 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 tangible. You did it. You saw it. Well, now take the experience and say, hey, wow, the will to grow, the will to survive. I just have to go out there and figure out how to implement it in my life on a reoccurring basis by creating my fire team, by creating a new dream or purpose in life. Now, the one thing that I always recommend, hands down, in any veteran that's in that struggling point is if you don't know what you're going to do, find something that's based around service. Find something that you have a sense of servitude with because your your transition, your transformation, the, the indoctrination, if you will, as a lot of people like to call it or, or what a lot of the liberal progressives say, you're brainwashing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you that transformation, that hits such a, it's such so dramatic. I mean, if you were to look at the kid I was three months before I entered boot camp, you know, to the person I was six months into buds, you'd be like, oh my God, what, how did that happen? Well, through the application of pain, right? <laughs> you know, physical, mental, spiritual pain, or emotional pain for me at the time, because I didn't have God in my life at the moment. So recognizing that you have to take these metaphors of your past life 
transition them into this 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 next evolutionary stage, but knowing that that same type of pain is going to be relevant, and that's how it happens. I think that you know, just with what you're saying, David, like for veterans and our listeners, and even myself, just hearing this, it's I find comfort, and I'm sure a lot of other vets will too, knowing that hey, it's okay that you have this these thoughts and coming out of it, you may have these thoughts, but just having someone express like yourself express like, Hey, all of this is, it may happen. What hopefully it doesn't, but it may happen having that mentality, but you will make through and that there are, you know, steps to take to where you can assimilate properly and you're not actually going crazy. Cause I think a lot of vets, including myself, I feel like I'm going crazy. And you know, and it just, I, I like to use the metaphor that I'm, I act like a toddler at times because I just cannot get control of what's going on in my life. And I think, like you said, it's just like taking a step back and not getting rid of everything that you learned in the military, but using it, you know, and, and growing from it is, is going to be so beneficial for people that are transitioning out or becoming brainwashed into the civilian sector. But I think it's just so important that these guys and gals hear this information prior to them getting out and having someone say like yourself and you know frog logic like hey this is going to happen but guess what we have tools that combat it and and tools that don't combat it or don't hinder it but allow you to be an effective person in the civilian sector world one of the easiest things that i say because everybody wants to know all right what are what are the what are the what are the tangible takeaways that you can help me with that i can implement in my life right now that change everything and i give them three right three things right off the bat you don't have to you don't have to read frog logic all my different steps you don't have to read on you know anything you don't have to do anything so number one is pt right we have PT and it is our saving grace. So you have to PT. And what I really recommend is go back to that regiment that, you know, you're, you're up 6.30 in the morning, you start your PT, you go to 7.30, you take your shower, you're ready for quarters. PT. And in your quarters is when you start that, that the organization, right, the, the framework of your day, okay? So PT, number one, that physical self, getting there, all right? Two, structure, right? I don't care if you don't have a job, you don't have anything. You come up with a daily routine. That's it. And until you get sucked into that momentum of, of a job or uh, you know going to school or whatever, you create a structure, right? At 08, I'm going to do this. At 09, zero, and just like you had, because it gives you, you know, you don't, the one great thing about being making those transitions and what why I think we're able to access the human mind as readily as we are is because there's so much structure in place that you know they that you take away that having to figure out what I'm going to do next and it exposes the mind for that that real strong imprinting that we do so structure and the last one is love hands down you need to be able to call a human being that you care, that you truly love, and you need to have them be able to tell them, say to you, I love you, right? One of the funniest things I've witnessed over the last 16 years, hands down, is when I first got into teams, man, to see two team guys give hugs to each other and, and say, hey, man, I love you, was non-existent. Didn't happen. You know, once 9-11 happened, man, you go to a SEAL reunion or a bar after a wake or whatever, it's 
you know, it's 50 dudes with their shirts off, literally arm around each other, looking in their eyes longingly and telling each other they love them, right? I don't, I don't have a single conversation with one of my closest friends in the teams or, or even my friends from college or the pe- my family members without telling them I love them on a regular basis because there's strength in love. The reason we were all willing to put it all on the line for a freaking concept, an idea, a document, is not because of the power of freedom and democracy, not because the power of our lineage, but because of the power that the person next to you was willing to die for you because they loved you. That's power. That power can never be taken away, but you got to exercise it. You have to say it. You have to mean it on a regular basis, right? I need to be able to call up my my that fr- those friends I told you about and say, "Hey, I am struggling today because running my own business and and being a motivational speaker with with fifty other SEAL motivational speakers up there ain't easy, right? <laughs> Writing motivational books with five thousand million motivational books ain't easy. Having a motivational podcast with a gazillion mo- ain't easy." But when I call up one of my teammates or one of my close friends or my family members and they look at me square and they're like, David, it's going to be all right. I love you. That's it. That's the power I needed to make it through that next step, that next evolution. I can't think of a better way to close the podcast than just with that right there. I, I really appreciate you coming on, David. I can see a part two, incredible. a part three, a part four uh, for sure with this. <laughs> I think we could probably go on for four more hours for sure talking about this subject, but really appreciate you coming on, taking time out and, and joining the show. Well, I'd, I'd like to say, uh, as you all are very aware, and the reason why you're doing this is because you, you are watching your friends suffer. You are watching your comrades, your teammates, the people you love suffer. And, you know, to to come together to deliver information like you're doing to create hope to create to because i'm sure you've already gotten emails i found your podcast i listened to a show and you saved my life yeah right there is no greater no greater sense of purpose on this planet to instill that type of love and hope into another human being especially another veteran there is no greater, just, there's, I mean, it is the pinnacle of what servitude is all about. And so to be on your show and to help you participate in that glorious, you know, act, I feel very blessed. So thank you all very much. Well, we're blessed by you coming on yeah. the show. Appreciate it. That's a great show. Thank you so much. Really yeah, is. I'm like, I want to go run like a million miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ready to go back and run into that brick wall. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Really appreciate it. And no doubt, seriously, if you're interested in coming back on again in the future, we'd love to have it back on. I would love to be on. Okay. Thank you all so much. Have a good one, Dave. Bye-bye. Please be sure to follow us at iTunes, leave a rating and your comments. And if you don't have an Apple product, no worries. You can follow us at SoundCloud, download the app. And if you're on Twitter, be sure to follow us there at Mentors, the number four, M-I-L.